Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Today's guest is Sarah Wood. She had so much insight that we have actually split this episode into two. So they will appear as two different episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Sarah is the co-founder of Unruly, the global video advertising marketplace that was acquired by News Corp in 2015 for a nine-figure fee. Sarah is now the Senior Independent Director at TechNation, a network for ambitious tech entrepreneurs. She is also a best-selling author. Her book, Stepping Up, How to Accelerate Your Leadership Potential, which is a must-read career handbook for millennials. Sarah was appointed an OBE for services to technology and innovation. She started her career as a lecturer at the University of Sussex and Cambridge. So perhaps, Sarah, you could start by explaining how an academic in American studies led to you founding a global video advertising marketplace and explain to us a little bit about what Unruly does. So the launch of the business was very personal. And I think that's often the case with founders. And it's often not a straight path to setting up a business. There's the zigging and zagging. So yes, I was an academic at Sussex, but I was struggling with life work balance. I was living in Hackney with two kids, but then commuting to Sussex just outside of Brighton, staying there during the week. And every week I broke my heart to leave my kids and saying goodbye to Ezra on a Tuesday morning at nursery and then knowing I wasn't going to see him again until later on in the week just took a real toll mentally. So even though I love my work and I love being an academic, I love the teaching, I love the research, it just felt as though it wasn't working with a family life. But I don't know how quickly I would have changed that if it hadn't been for the 7-7 terrorist attack. And that took place in July 2005. I should have been at King's Cross when it was kicking off. But as usual, I was running late, late dropping the kids off for school. I hadn't got that far on my journey and ended up just being evacuated from a tube station and went home to see what was unfolding on the news. And seeing what happened there and feeling that there had been a near miss just really made me rethink what my priorities were uh, and what I wanted. If this was my last day, what would I want to be doing? So that is really what brought me to hand in my resignation at Sussex. And then at the same time, my co-founder, who was also my husband, Scott, was finishing up at his previous job, which was a tech startup. And we decided to do something together, something that combined the family with business. And it was a really exciting time to be starting a business. So the dot-com crash of 2000 was receding from memory. This is late 2005, early 2006. Social web was gathering steam and the information highway was being democratized and socialized. Uh, it was opening up with blogs, with recommendation engines, early social networks. So we were really excited by that. We sublet desks in the Truman Brewery on Brick Lane and we just started coming up with ideas. I've got to be honest, most of them didn't work. <laughs> some were ahead of their time, some were just downright wrong. <laughs> But it was the, you know, the fun of the discoveries um, that, that kept us going. And, and you learn a lot from those mistakes. So our first offering was called eatmyhamster.com. Uh, it was a comedy website where people could submit links to jokes and videos and images. And we failed miserably to build a community and to build a big enough audience. But what we did learn from that was that video was the medium that people were really enjoying and engaging with and spending the most time with. So from that, we decided to build our video chart. So to track videos and see which videos were getting the most traction and being shared the most online and we were the first company to do that so we were the first business to be able to track shareability and to rank the most viral videos in fact i remember google calling us late in 2006 and asking you know why there were no google videos in our chart and we said, well, you know, everybody is there watching YouTube videos. And they were like, oh, YouTube. And then, of course, a few weeks later, they bought YouTube. 
<laughs> we like to think we we're part of their due diligence. <laughs> and then we, so we started with, with video data analytics, but then we moved on to looking for a business model, really. How do we turn this into a business? What we saw was that lots of brands were trying to create videos that would work online and that would be viral and that people would share with each other. So they were coming to us because of the viral video chart and we built a marketplace. So on the one side, we had publishers who would offer their websites and the other had the brands who would have videos. And then the brands would pop their videos onto the platform and the publishers would be able to pick them up and make money every time somebody watched them. And at the time, this was quite pioneering because before this, it was just spreadsheets and it was people sharing spreadsheets around and trying to contact each other that way. So it was really exciting business to be part of. And then we built it and scaled it into global advertising marketplace, working with over 90% of top brands, working with some fantastic publishers. But of course, the business continued to evolve. And as Google entered the field and Facebook entered the field and were very aggressively competitive, we were constantly needing to iterate and evolve the business, making sure that brand safety was front of mind and that data was embedded in everything that we did, because this is really what brands wanted. Yes, they wanted their video to be shared and to be shared in great environments, but they also wanted to understand why people were in interacting with video. What was it about their video that was successful and, and really had that data to be able to help them? Uh, well, what an um, amazing story and, and how you started that as well probably has a lot of similarities in terms of a period of shock that led to reflection in terms about what people are doing with their life. I'm sure rings true for a lot of people you know, in 2020 over the course of the pandemic. So perhaps you can share what you're up to now. Yeah, yeah, of course. So it's a really interesting time for all of us at the moment. And I think for most people, it's a different time. Things have changed. They found a different pace, a different work-life balance, sometimes for the best, sometimes for the worst. For me, having stepped down from Unruly, it's been a moment to pause and pause in a really positive way. I've had the time to do some of the things that I've been longing to do for years and haven't had the time to do. So judging the Women's Prize for Fiction was enormous fun, really inspiring. Taking the time to mentor earlier stage founders, especially female founders who are just setting up their businesses. That's been fantastic. And I sit on the board of Tech Nation. And this is a real passion for me because I'm a huge believer in the importance of the UK tech ecosystem and how it can drive forward our economy and provide quality jobs and jobs that people feel passionate about. So it's great to be part of that. And Tech Nation is a network for ambitious tech scale ups and it runs training programs and it collects data around the UK tech ecosystem. So it's fabulous being able to see some of the next generation of tech businesses which are scaling, looking at their challenges and seeing what technology can do to help. And what sectors do you particularly see growing in that role through TechNation? Because I know there are a number of different programs that it does in fintech and AI, but yeah, which sectors do you see particularly growing? Well, absolutely, you're right. We've expanded the offering over recent years due to demand. So yes, fintech is huge. AI is huge. But this year, we've launched Net Zero for the first time. And that's really exciting because there are a lot of clean tech businesses coming through. Some of them already pretty well scaled when it comes to companies like Bulb and Green Energy and others much smaller still starting out. So we're seeing a lot of clean tech, green tech, <laughs> many things that you can call it. Also, a lot of health startups. And actually, the best place to go for anyone who's keen to see what the future 
future of the UK economy looks like is probably to look at the latest cohort of upscale companies. So upscale six, a bunch of fantastic companies such as Florence, for example, which is about more flexible caregiving, or you've got um, Olio, which is food sharing app. Then there are even earlier stage companies that are just finding their feet and revolutionizing industries such as the writing of wills. So Farewell is one of my favorite companies on the cohort. It's making it a lot cheaper, more affordable and easier for people to write their first will. So wherever you look, you can see opportunity and you can see entrepreneurs making the most of it and moving quickly. And in a way, it's quite strange for me because I'm pausing and not involved on a day-to-day basis in a business. But I watch these entrepreneurs, you know, I watch them how they really dig in and go fast and are nimble and able to change and move quickly in what is a very difficult, volatile operating environment. Yeah, well, I should certainly remember the name uh, Florence, as that's the name of my uh, my baby daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of challenges do you see those companies having when it comes to hiring and recruiting? So those that are on those programs tend to have got a bit of traction, possibly employing 15 to 20 people and so on. What skills are they most requiring at that point? So there are some very specific skills, such as software engineers, always highly in demand, increasingly data analysts. But then you have more general skills and general roles that are also needed. So whether it's legal counsel, accountant, finance manager, marketing specialist, and actually marketing seems to be a key area where often companies that are scaling feel the pain and feel the need to bring in a specialist. Because you can scale so far, you can certainly get to product market fit, launch your product and be confident that you've got something that works without investing in marketing. But if you want to scale that 10x, 100x, and especially if you want to move into different markets, And one of the biggest ambitions of the Tech Nation cohort companies generally is to scale overseas. And if you're looking to do that, then really understanding the numbers, the math, and also the emotions that lie behind people's purchasing behaviors and what's going to drive them to buy the product, use the product and keep coming back to it. So yeah, marketing, absolutely key. Getting the economics right there. And operations generally, operations managers, COOs. I'm constantly getting pinged on WhatsApp groups by people saying, do you know a great COO? Someone who can kind of take this business and help to scale it because it's very different running a startup to running a scale-up. Yes, quite. That's very true. And it's one of the interesting things that has come out of the theme so far with other guests is software engineering and data analysts. With your background as a university lecturer, are there courses that you would particularly recommend or perhaps places that people can go and test themselves in terms of data and software engineering? Because yeah, we all did maths at school and so on, but in some careers, you then don't use it again much, but actually you might have a real aptitude for it. Are there any courses, testers that you would particularly recommend for people to try those? There is no shortage of online tools that you can use. So Google searching is the first tool of any software engineer to look for your specific area. So you're going to find countless TED Talks to inspire you. You're going to find countless YouTube tutorials and then online courses such as the Digital Business Academy, also run by Tech Nation, is really helpful for preparing people for a digital world and looking at some of the opportunities that are available. But it really depends on the sector. So if you're interested in video gaming, that's very different from being interested in sports science and maybe data analysis as it relates to footballers. There are many different ways of approaching it, but you know you will find what you need online if you search for it. And if you talk to people, and that's where 
I think networking has become more important than ever before. As we're stuck in our homes, being able to not just look online and be educated and teach ourselves online, but actually talk to other people is really helpful too. What I would mention actually, Jimmy, which I think is really helpful for people who don't necessarily know what they want to do, is the really exciting new institution that's opening next year. It's opening in London. It's called the London Interdisciplinary Uh, Oh, I'm going to forget what it's called now, LIS, Um, but it's the Interdisciplinary University. And it's designed to teach students not a specific subject like history or maths, but to cut across the curriculum and provide training that is both, or an education that is both arts-based and science-based and primarily focused on specific big topics such as climate change. The idea there being that what we really need to do is to learn to move out of our silos and to cut across those silos and see the bigger picture. And traditional university education hasn't done that but this new uh, interdisciplinary institution aims to do just that yeah and that is a key theme that we've seen is that sort of melody of skills multidisciplinary all the different kind of terms that you can have but summing up to kind of be that generalist and being able to see different things across all of the businesses is a real theme that we've picked up on in your book you talked about the app prime that was particularly helpful in terms of readying people for the future of work can you talk to us a bit more about that yeah so prime was useful for my marketing team a few years ago who were just getting into digital marketing and it's just a great little app that gets you started with thinking about how to do digital marketing how to think about the different social platforms how to think about branding strategy and it was delivered in small bite-sized pieces So it's the kind of thing you could look at when you were waiting in a queue for a coffee, or you could look at when you were by the water cooler and there was no one there to talk to. Now, is that still the most relevant? I don't know. My suspicion is there will be lots of other new tools that have come up since then that people are using. But I think that is the kind of learning that people really respond to, something that is in their pocket and that they can look at and interact with when it suits. Because we're busy, we've got lots of calls on our attention. So being able to fit learning into our work life and to do that in a flexible way way is really important. Not everybody has the luxury or the privilege to be able to sit at home quietly, spend days thinking about what they want to do next. (laughs) Yeah, you and I are quite lucky in that, I would say so. Um, (laughs) You talk in the book, Stepping Up, about, and you, you referenced it there in terms of finding your clan. So behind every successful leader is a network of supporters and confidence. And it's one of the most important investments you can make is cultivating your network. How do people a bit earlier on in their career, perhaps, but although it's relevant for all stages in this online world that we now find ourselves in, how can people go about building their network? It is hugely important at every stage of your career, and it can be hard starting out. Uh, It can be very daunting. Although, interestingly, if you're quite introverted, it remains daunting, and it continues to be something that feels challenging and sweat-inducing. So I think the key thing to remember is to choose conversations that interest you, and to choose events that you feel really excited by, and where you want to learn. And whether you're doing this in person or online, this has certainly worked for me, and I get very very tongue-tied at events and would get quite nervous about them. But I'd always think, no, 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 I'm going to learn something and it's going to be super interesting and I'm going to really enjoy it. And if anything else comes from it, fantastic. But if not, it doesn't matter. The learning is enough. So going with a learning mindset always helps, I think, because then you come away feeling, if nothing else, you feel like you've learned something new. But generally, when you're in that kind of environment, because you're interested and because you share the same interests as the people sitting next to you, and whether that's next year on hop in or next year in an actual auditorium, it's really easy at the end to turn around and go, God, that was good, wasn't it? What did you think about this? What did you think about that? 
So starting from a point of shared interest, I think is, is really helpful. And it's one of the reasons why as people are shifting careers and looking to change their path, being really clear about what interests them, what they're excited about, what they enjoy reading about, talking about, writing about, understanding that very early on in the journey is important because it does take time. It takes time to cultivate expertise. It takes time to cultivate a network. So you want to make sure it's something that you're really passionate about. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the opportunities in this time is that in a way networking has almost become easier. Like you say, there's almost been this kind of huge democratization of events. You know, lots of events are now free to attend. And I know that Tech Nation, for example, is putting on a huge amount of things where you can go and attend, make some contacts, have some learning and so forth. And that is a really strong way of taking those first steps, which so often can be the hardest. Ah, yes. I think digital in general opened up the playing field when it came to networking and COVID has really helped to level it. So you don't need to live in a city. You don't need to have the time to travel places. You don't need to worry about childcare. There are a lot of ways in which COVID, I think, has improved the way that we network. And there are some trade-offs. Not everybody enjoys sitting on a Zoom call, sitting in front of their screen. But it's a low-risk strategy now to build your network online because you don't have to take the time spend the money traveling you can just sit there with a cup of tea and you can begin by listening listening sometimes is a very undervalued <laughs> skill at events um you just soak it in listen to what people have got to say take those small steps to begin with find the conversations that you're interested in and then think about how you can bring value to the event and sometimes that's by asking questions and we all know that feeling of giving a talk hoping desperately that some questions are going to come in and you get really grateful when you see people are interacting and engaging and asking questions. So that's a great way of interacting. Live tweeting, if you're part of a Zoom event and being able to amplify it on different social platforms is often really appreciated by events organisers or writing a blog post about something that really struck a chord with you and you've experienced personally. That can also be powerful and really helpful, helpful to the event. And you can feel that you've listened, you've learned, but you've also brought value back in return. So on that social networking side, I think it's very interesting. And one of the questions I really wanted to ask you was about LinkedIn, which sometimes when it comes to social media, I feel is is a little bit forgotten displaying what you're up to and so on. You know, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter tend to dominate. But I saw on LinkedIn that you've now got almost 100,000 followers. We're trying to grow the presence of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future on LinkedIn, as we believe that's where people searching for jobs will be spending time. But it's quite hard work. How did you sort of go about building that following on there? Did you set out particularly to do that or was it just something that happened organically? It very much happened organically and over a long period of time in the same way that Unruly was growing. And I guess it went hand in hand with the business. So as the business grew and became known for online video advertising, cracking the code on viral video, you know, these are really interesting marketing issues that people wanted to discuss, wanted to know more about. And LinkedIn is a very natural place to share those ideas because it's where people don't just go to promote themselves, but they go to learn and they go to learn about their area and their sector and what's new and what's coming around the corner. I think it's a really good place to find your clan, to find your online clan, to find people who will champion you and who will reshare, repost your messages and your content, find people who will listen and give feedback, and then find people who are potentially looking for a role that you might want to work with at your next startup or in your next job. But it doesn't happen overnight. And I think for me, it was just 
over time, posting other people's content, making sure that I always included other people. The most popular posts ever was a list of the top female entrepreneurs of 2018. And these were women that I could see were building fantastic businesses. And I just wanted to give them a shout out. And LinkedIn's a great place to do that. And if you can include lots of people in that post, then they're really keen to talk about the post and share the post as well. So it becomes a real virtuous cycle. That was a great first half an hour with Sarah. We we're going to take a short interval here. Please do check out the second half of the interview where we discuss neurodiversity, brand building, what the government should do next and the politics of online laughter and how at times I didn't find it so funny.